Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We pick Michael Schumacher's top 10 Formula One wins and reveal which one we think is the best. Michael Schumacher continues to hold the record for most Grand Prix won and will continue to do so for a while yet, even though Lewis Hamilton is uh, closing on him at a surprising pace. But which of his 91 victories is the greatest? That's a question we'll answer on this edition of the Autosport Podcast as we run through what we think are his 10 greatest victories. I'm your host, Ed Straw. My first guest is Glenn Freeman. Now, Glenn, you did some work on Schumacher's greatest wins last year. So why did you delve into that topic in the first place? Uh, I guess you could say, for starters, uh, with Michael, you've got the most races to choose from, which is always fun. 91 is quite a big sample set. Um, but we like doing these sort of things with world champions or great drivers. Um, our magazine editor, Kevin Turner, is very good at doing these sort of things. Except um, Kevin does have a bit of a habit of here's the top 10 and here's another 30. Here's another 81 <laughs> that almost made it. True. Uh, so I tried to be quite ruthless with this. Um, we'll get into the extras at the end. There are obviously ones that are missed out. And the great thing about this is that everybody's got a different opinion on it but um as you said michael remains one of the most still one of the most famous formula one drivers of all time and a lot of people to a lot of people he's still their favorite driver as well so he felt like a 
a good a good subject matter for this and it was really enjoyable going back through the autosport archives the magazine archives and, uh, and putting this list together and finding out lots of little nuggets of information that have maybe been forgotten um during the passage of time so it was, it was really good fun and does it mean you've also forgiven him for him taking on bridge at you suggesting he might be on a mercedes glory run at a test what year was it was it 2011 2011 yeah uh, we fortunately we we made up in person roughly a year, a year later but yeah we we crossed swords in 2011 when mercedes was struggling in testing and uh i was covering the dtm at the time so i had quite a few contacts at mercedes and i'd been tipped off that they were getting so much negative press in uh, in Germany that there'd kind of been an order from Stuttgart to unleash a bit of pace, which the top teams obviously don't like doing in testing. When I put that suggestion to Michael at the end of the day, um, it went down very badly. And uh, he told me in no uncertain terms how little I knew and basically slagged me off. Um, I gave a bit back because I was pretty confident in the information. So I faced a bit of a backlash from his fans for that. Um, but a year later at Valencia, I, I was there for the Grand Prix. And to his credit, um, I had Michael's manager um, barking at me to not ask him questions after a session, after a practice session behind a garage. And he answered them and he gave me some time. Um, and then later in the weekend, uh, the Mercedes media sessions clashed with a McLaren media session. And something had happened at McLaren. I can't remember what it was. So everybody in the paddock was at McLaren to find out what was going on there. So in the Mercedes session, it was me and one other journalist and we deliberately sat at opposite ends of the hospitality to make sure that um, the team member wielding the microphone had to keep traveling quite a distance between our questions, which Michael saw the funny side of. And it was, yeah, that was just quite an amusing exchange that weekend. And obviously that weekend was his only podium of his uh, largely unsuccessful comeback. So it was quite a good weekend for him in general and he was in good, good spirits. So I'm glad that we didn't leave things on the 2011 exchange. Excellent. That's good. Good you uh, pulled it back from the from the brink there. Now, Damien Smith is my other guest. Now we talk about Michael Schumacher's ninety-one wins. I always remember the Alan Prost fifty-one number seemed absolutely unbeatable, and now for someone to have beaten it, not just with fifty-three, but with with ninety-one, is still a bit astonishing. Even though we're twelve years on from him hitting that number. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, I think the um, I never thought anyone would beat Prost's record. Because I remember thinking that twenty-seven Grand Prix wins was a, was an amazing number. So it's a huge thing when Prost broke Stewart's record. It was, it? yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so for Michael to go past Alan and just keep on going was was remarkable. And that that whole era, the, the Ferrari era, um, those those five seasons, um, it was just incessant. And you, you know, I always assumed he'd get to a hundred. I didn't think he would end at 91. So, and I kind of hoped, although I'm supposed to be impartial, when he came back at Mercedes, I did kind of secretly hope that um, he'd hit the ton eventually. And I, I thought he'd certainly win, win races. So it was, a, it was a shame and a bit of a disappointment for everyone, I think, that he, he didn't. Well, I think there was a great lost win that tends to be forgotten about, which is Monaco 2012. Mm. He was fastest in qualifying. And if you're fastest in qualifying at Monaco, generally, you win. But of course, because he'd rear-ended Bruno Senna in the Spanish Grand Prix the, the weekend before the race, Pastor Maldonado and the other Williams won, he had a five-place grid penalty. Yeah. So he never started from pole. He's not considered. I mean, that, that's sort of the high point of his, of his comeback. And it's kind of a, I guess it's a, it's almost a metaphor for the, the comeback and what it was that yeah. even that high point was denied him by, something that, that happened in a previous race. His mistake, but... Yeah. It would have been great to, to, for him to win at Monaco as well. 
that would have been amazing, given how good he was at Monaco. And then there's Raskas in 06 and all that stuff, you know. So there was so much history for him at Monaco that it would have been, it would have capped the career, I guess. Um, but as it is, 91, still an amazing number. I mean, and, and if Lewis does manage to equal and beat it, um, I mean, which he can. Do you think he will? You can never be absolutely certain because mm. you never know what people are going to be in. But he's on 67. So if he still is in quick cars, if he's in cars as strong as he's been over the past few years, then it's not going to take that many years for him to, to get up there, which would be an amazing achievement, especially when you consider we've got Sebastian Vettel, who's on 51, level with Prost now. So we've got two drivers currently heavily adding to their tally. Sometimes we've had periods where it's just one driver piling them on. But yeah, mm. but it's amazing. Actually, what you mentioned about that Ferrari era when it, it was Schumacher seemingly winning every week, it's why it's quite interesting to look at 10 races like this because it's very easy just to lump in 2000 to 2005, uh, 2000 to 2004. 2005 definitely shouldn't go in there. His, no. his, <laughs> I'll give a spoiler. His Indy 2005 win is not in this list. <laughs> that's in another list we're putting together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a slightly more controversial one for, for a, a later date. But it's very easy just for them, that just to pile into just a big red mass of victories that all blur into into one, even though obviously... Some of those years were very dominant, 2002, 2004, 2003 was really competitive, really close to championship. So it's, it's, it's good to look. So we're going to start, uh, Glenn, with a Ferrari era win. In fact, the last win, number 91, 2006 Chinese Grand Prix. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not one that stands out massively as one of his iconic drives, but I felt it, it made the cut. Partly because, as you say, very hard sometimes to choose some of those Ferrari era wins. But for me, it's the significance of this one. Everything was on the line at the end of the 2006 season. You know, Ferrari had had a bad 05. Fernando Alonso had come in and toppled the king, really. And Schumacher was back on form in 06. And it was really, you know, head-to-head stuff between him and Alonso. And he needed this win to, to really keep championship hopes alive getting towards the end of the season. And... Obviously, there's some mixed conditions as well, which Michael always excelled at. Um, there's a lot of rain in these 10 races we're looking there at. There is, yeah. There's, there's a bit of a theme there. Um, but obviously, one of the things is when, when the weather conditions come in, you I think you get a better idea of the contribution the drivers make into to the victory. So that was why a driver like Michael often stood out so much when it was wet. But in China in 06, changeable conditions, bit, some different pit strategies going on, drivers either not changing tyres or you didn't know when to cross over from Inters to Slicks. Renault had a bit of a team orders decision to make when um, Alonso was slow at one point in the race and he had Fisichella bottled up behind him and really they should have let Fisichella go, get down the road and uh, worry about it later on. Uh, Michael capitalised on that really and he capitalised on a few scrappy moments from either Renault on the strategy or Fisichella when he came out of the pits I think. And made a bit of an error. And again, Michael was straight on it. You only need to give him half a chance and he's going to, in this era, was certainly going to send one down the inside. So there are a lot of elements, I think, that made this one worthy of just sneaking into our top 10. Um, yeah, just we saw a lot of different facets, I think, of what Schumacher and Ferrari were all about. And there was just so much riding on it as well. I think it's a really good choice, Glenn, to have this race in there for a number of reasons. I think, you know, things you've already pointed out. It was a classic Schumacher win in many ways. Um, you know, brilliant driving, but also having the, the intelligence and the, the teamwork behind him, backing him up. And um, unlikely as well, because he started, I think, sixth in that race. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, he was sixth early on. Um, and it's, you know, that season also, I think, is a really important one. Um, 
in in the in the history of Formula One in a way because these are two titans of the sport. We didn't realise quite at the time how important Alonso was going to be. He was still so young, still so early in his career. And in '05, he hadn't beaten Schumacher to the title. In '05, he'd beaten McLaren's. Uh, '06, this was a proper Schumacher versus Alonso. Uh, the only the only time we actually really saw that. At, with them both at the, at the top of their game, and it was a, it was a classic season, and uh, you know, and to beat Fernando in the way he did that day, yeah, it was it is a special win, and and obviously strange that it turned out to be the last one as well. And as an aside, it's funny you mentioning the Schumacher versus Alonso. Of course, at the end of '06, we're saying, well, Alonso double champion. How long before he chases down Michael Schumacher? Seven yeah. titles and ninety-one wins. How are we still sat here with him only as a two-time world champion? He hasn't even won that many races no. since then. Considering it's it's yeah astonishing. The, but that's, the other uh, that's thing, digressing. With, the other thing with this race is um, towards the end, Alonso was back on the right tires and got his got his groove in. And he does he does close up a, a twenty four second gap down to three seconds in the final stint. Um, but again, when you when you do that and you're in you're you're increasing your presence in Michael Schumacher's mirrors, it's very rare that he's gonna he's gonna make a mistake or he's gonna throw it off. And I'm sure he he would have seen Fernando coming. He'd have been informed of how the gap was coming down. But he was probably pacing himself to the finish by that point. And yeah, didn't put a wheel wrong when he was the chaser or the one being chased, which I think is really impressive. And you got the added context of this being Schumacher you know, we all know the world knows that Schumacher is not going to be at Ferrari next year and that yeah. he was basically stepping down uh, and this is proving you know it's a sign you know this is a little nod to De Montezemolo this is what I still can do this is what you're losing yeah setting the bar for Kimi Raikkonen Absolutely. for the following year yeah. plus of course he had to eradicate the memory of driving into Christian Albers the year before on, that, on a gridding <laughs> yeah, lap which, the race. which was by Schumacher's fault it's an yeah. astonishing uh, yeah. astonishing incident but yeah you know and it's uh, the fact he could deliver that kind of win right at the end um, mm. and in fact his last race at Brazil when he finished fourth after an early puncher was a, was a fantastic drive so it he, was he was still, still at the height of his powers wasn't he it's funny yeah. we still almost talk about that as if that's the end of his F1 career I, I almost sort of compartmentalised original Schumacher and yeah. sort of return Schumacher they're almost different drivers 2.0 yeah. yeah so it was called him it's strange isn't it well, let's move on to the next race which is one that probably does crop up a bit more often because of the unusual circumstances Glenn yeah, it's the 2004 French Grand Prix and the first note I made obviously when researching this was how difficult it was, particularly from 2002 or 2004, to find races to choose because for all we know, Michael could have been a minute down the road from everybody driving on the absolute limit of the car but the car was so dominant at the time, it was really hard to know as I say, uh, how much of the equation was, was really him. And in fairness, in 2004... That Ferrari was a car that used its pace when they really needed it. Monza yeah. is a standout case when yeah, you suddenly absolutely. think, where did that come from? Yeah, and you, and you could see the days when, when if Barrichello was with him and they were clearing off, then you could it really hammered home how dominant that car was. But this race is obviously famous because it's the planned four pit stops to win the Grand Prix, taking advantage of the fact that the then revamped Manny Core circuit had a very short pit lane. Um, I used to think that Ross Braun was responsible for this call, but when looking it up, it was Luca Baldazzeri who'd made the shout. I think on race morning had worked out the pit lane loss time and said, actually, if we do it this way. Um, and that obviously appealed to, I think, an, a type of racing that Michael really enjoyed, the kind of the blast between the pit stops and do as much as you can. He was the master of that. He was, yeah. And obviously that will crop up again uh, later in the countdown. And the other thing to remember here is obviously... By this point, Renault and Fernando Alonso were becoming an emerging force in Formula One. Um, they were on their case in this race, but by doing, Renault didn't clock the four-stop strategy. 
So when they tried to match Ferrari strategically early in the race, they ended up going for a really long um, stint on a three-stop strategy. And that just made Alonso too slow to respond to Michael's pace. He still had to deliver it. You know, it's, it's, it's basically a race full of qualifying laps and executed really to perfection. It's interesting, Glenn, you, you said it was Belseri who came up with the, the idea, but that again emphasises the sort of collegiate approach that Ferrari yeah. had in that era where they, they worked as a team and Ross as the, the man at the top of the table would listen to everyone and was willing to take chances. He was always, always like that in his career, always willing to take a chance. And if someone had come up with the evidence that this would work, he would have backed them all the way. And, and it's a prime example of that, that working, isn't it? Yeah. No, no, it's, um, Sometimes I wonder if it was Ferrari trying to challenge themselves as well. They, they probably could have won a conve- in a conventional strategy uh, that day. But yeah, I like the fact that there was no resting on the laurels, clearly. They didn't go, right, it's a three-stop race. We'll just make sure we outpace the Renault when we need to, whether it's before or after a stop. They've gone, why don't we try this? Why don't we do something different? I don't think we've ever, we ever saw it again during the refueling era. Nobody tried it or felt they had a dominant enough car to try it back at Manicor where where the pit lane was so short. So it stands out as a real one-off. Um, but I think it epitomizes what a lot of those Schumacher races were about, where it was him and the pit wall sort of working in conjunction during a live race to to really make something happen. Yeah, and the other thing about that era, I always thought, and I I, I dipped in and out of that era quite a bit. I was at quite a few of the races. I wasn't covering Formula 1 full-time, um, but I did, I did see a lot of them firsthand. And you always got that sense that they, they just loved winning. Yeah. They utterly loved winning. Michael, you know, um, his, his celebrations were obviously always over the top. But even if he'd completely trounced the field as he often had, uh, you'd, you'd think he'd won by, you know, half a second the way he was celebrating. Um, but the, as a team, uh, I remember once witnessing Ross and Michael, uh, having this embrace, uh, at the Nürburgring. And I, I was just, going down the stairs at the end of the race to go out into the paddock to try and find some uh, some news as the race was finishing rather than while everyone else was up in the, the press room. And I, I kind of just stood back and witnessed this moment when no one else was around. And it, um, and uh, But you could see the, 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 the friendship between them was really evident. And it was that, that sort of utter, utter joy in taking a victory. It meant everything to them. And I think that motivation was never never lost was it It was always there yeah it's one of the things i think braun pushed really hard to keep that culture in ferrari as well didn't he they were they were very good everybody always says it's it's one thing to win it once whether it's one race or one championship it's finding the drive to do it again and the fact that ferrari did it year after year after year during that time Mm. that was a lot of credit to jean todd and braun at the top of the team making sure that people didn't didn't back off didn't didn't rest on their previous achievements and that's, I think that's a real challenge to maintain that mentality for the yeah. amount of time that they did. And I'm sure Michael was key to that as well, because as Damien says, yeah, he, he celebrated every victory as if it was his first or as if it had been completed with a, a last lap pass. And I think that, that would grate on some people who maybe weren't fans of him or felt he was rubbing it in people's faces. But I think now we've had time to maybe reflect on it and we've learned a bit more about the man. Mm. I think it was genuine. Um, and... That says a lot about the drive and also how hard he would have been pushing himself because a part of it is that release of emotion when you've achieved it yet again. And that's why that's why we had 91 wins to talk about in the first place, I think. Well, we've looked at win 91 and win number 79 as the French Grand Prix was. Let's go back to number one. Belgian Grand Prix 1992 in the, the yellow camel Benetton. 
Yeah, great car, um, great circuit, and obviously one year on from the track where he made his Formula One debut, as short as it was in the Jordan. Um, again, mixed conditions, and I think one of the amusing things about this race is that maybe Schumacher owes a little bit of a thank you to Martin Brundle, um, who'd Michael had gone off track. I think he'd slid through the gravel near maybe Stavolo or something like that, and he ended up behind Brundle, who was on uh, wets. And he could see the state of his teammates' rear tyres and thought, oh, they're, they're cooking, they're overheating, maybe I'll come in for some slicks. Um, and that put him ahead of everybody in terms of making that switch, which again, throughout the rest of his career, he would often be one of those drivers who would who would make that change before a lot of others. Um, had a little bit of help in that Nigel Mansell was chasing him down in the dominant Williams of 92, um, but then an exhaust problem cost him a bit of power. Um, but Michael had put himself in the position, I think, to, to benefit from that in the first place. Yeah, this one's a good one. I mean, for me, it's a personal race because I've written about it before on the website, but um, yeah, it's my first foreign Grand Prix as an 18-year-old on a Page and Moy trip, and I was sat on a tuft of grass at Puan witnessing all this <laughs> happening. Um, and you did feel it was a momentous occasion because we could all see at that stage that this guy was going to be special. We had no idea how special, but... Uh, you thought it's always great to see a guy win his first Grand Prix and to be there and, and witness it. But you thought this time, you thought well, this could be the first of very many. And obviously, it took him a while to get into his stride at Benetton, but uh, once he did, uh, and especially at Ferrari, it was nonstop. But that 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 weekend um, and that race, it's, it's been labelled lucky a few times. Um, I don't think there was much luck about it. I mean, it did fall towards him in the sense that Senna took his. I took a risk at the start on 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 yeah. tyres as well and was out of the contention. Mansell had his problem, so couldn't close him down. But uh, this was a typical Schumacher win where he used intelligence and a moment of um, quick thinking to make a decision that worked out brilliantly for him. And that allowed him to compensate for a car that, remember, qualified 2.7 seconds off the pace there. Yeah. Imagine that, a car 2.7 seconds off winning a Grand Prix today. Where was he on the grid? Because 2.7 seconds didn't cover many cars that year. That put him third. Mansell was on pole <laughs> by the small matter of 2.198 seconds from uh, from Senna. Petrezzi somehow three seconds down in the, in the other Williams. Yeah, different times. But yeah, it, I think it's amazing that a driver just one year on from his Grand Prix debut, the famous uh, debut for Jordan, when he only lasted as far as Radion on the first lap before the, because the clutch went, but just one year on, he could he could make that decision and say, "Oh, I see that right. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this." That's that's a trait we saw later on, and mm. it'd be impressive if he did it 150 Grand Prix in. But to have the confidence it's, without is, a win under his belt, one year in, this is when these special drivers make the difference. And we, you know, we, people talk these days about Lewis Hamilton. Is he worth 40 million? Um, he is because. He, again, he's one of those drivers who makes the difference. It's not just about the car, and it's in these moments that these special drivers stand out. And that that was a, a, a typical and an early sign of Schumacher's what we'd see as, as later on as a, as a typical kind of performance for him. Glenn, let's move two wins further on. Brazil, nineteen ninety four. Yeah, this is obviously the start of Michael Schumacher as a Formula One World Championship contender, and it was the only time we really got a proper look at Schumacher versus Senna. They had their run-ins as uh, when Senna was at McLaren still. There's some great footage knocking about on the internet of Senna giving him a dressing down on more than one occasion. Um, France and Germany spring to mind, I think, from 92. Uh, really interesting. Um, and what we wanted then was those two going at it in the best cars, and we were obviously robbed of that. But the one time they did go at it for almost the duration of a Grand Prix... 
Schumacher and Benetton came out on top. Um, somehow, Senna got the very difficult Williams FW16 onto pole for his home, home race, for his debut for Williams. Schumacher shadowed him, then jumped him in the stops. Um, again, this was the first refueling race, and it was a preview of what was to come, I think, in Michael's career, um, using pit strategy or just fast pit stops. And then... Um, they ran around still roughly together, but Senna didn't have anything in response and eventually spun and he admitted the error. The car was just simply too difficult to drive. I think Adrian knew he's been very honest about how how challenging that FW16 was at the start of 94. So Senna was doing quite a good job. Again, you could argue that Schumacher perhaps had the better car at that point. Is it is it a stunning great victory? But I think it was the first time he's gone head-to-head with Ayrton for a, for a race win. Benetton by that point probably thought, we've got a chance here. They knew they had a good car. And he's delivered straight away. And as you say, Ed, this is win number three. We're not talking about a guy who's already got 10 or 15 wins under his belt. So, yeah, I think it's a really significant race. And, yeah, just such a shame it was the only chance we really got to see those two head-to-head at the front of a Grand Prix. And as you say, also, it was um, a sign of a team coming of age, I think. You know, Benetton had always been contenders but but sort of distant contenders suddenly they were they were right there in the middle of it and you thought this could be the time when they they come through and they were such a good race team at this time you know with um obviously pat simmons on the on the pit wall um uh marshalling things and he's such a great strategist as we saw through not only the the schumacher era benetton but also the lonzo era um and they i know there's a there's the shadow over 94 and benetton um and there's always that doubt about the legality of the car and all the rest of it. But as a race team, their time had come and they, they had, um, uh, the, the right package and the best driver and Senna knew it. I think that was, that was the thing. And that was the intriguing thing. And that, you know, one of the, one of the many tragedies of that season that we lost was, was how Senna would have responded to that after, after Imola. It had the feeling of quite a seismic win at the time, didn't it? Because the Benetton had set some really impressive times in pre-season testing, but Senna had gone to Williams, and the combination of the dominant team and the, and the dominant driver, everyone was expecting them to to walk it. But obviously, as you alluded to, Glenn, the the Williams, the switch from active to passive was the key to the problems with that car. They didn't have the platform control. The Williams had been developed around having that platform control longer than any other car, so there in, are inherent instabilities that would have been dialed out with that 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 existed. So they were stalling. The, it was very sensitive to the front ride height with the with the wing side pods were stalled and it wasn't fixed on many core and it's a bumpy track at Interlagos which is why Senna I think almost at the time we underestimated how mighty has a remarkable drive isn't it and he was desperately trying to do what the, what the car couldn't do but it was a so I think when point of trivia does anyone know what is unique about 94 Interlagos among Schumacher's 91 wins go on blank faces it's the only victory he took by a lap really, really? yeah the only one Wow. So there we go. I don't really know what we make of that. But That's amazing. Given yeah. all the wins, the the, 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 so, you know, the Ferrari dominance. Exactly. Yeah, you'd, you'd assume there'd be a few. I remember yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it just leapt out of me when I was looking at the, uh, at the gaps. Well, so. I remember from that weekend, I think Damon Hill was on the second row of the grid. And I remember he was a long way down in that car. And it, they, were in, they were in a class of two that whole weekend, whether it was qualifying or the race. Um but yeah, for, so for, for him to win that race by a lap is impressive once obviously Senna had spun off. But for yeah, the fact that that didn't happen again in his career, I, I, I'm amazed by that. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice stat. Well, let's move on to another one, Glenn. Now, this is distinct in that it's Schumacher's win from the lowest grid position, if memory serves. 16th he started, I think, didn't he? 
Yeah, the 95 Belgian Grand Prix. Quite a very famous race. Um, we had a jumbled up grid because of a bit of mixed weather. And Schumacher crashed in qualifying, didn't he? Quite a big shunt, um, if I recall. And so we had, I think Hill was out of position as well. He starts something like eighth. Eighth is my number in my um, mind, yeah. Didn't take either of them long to get through to the front of the field. And then we had a very famous battle between them where many people, Damon included, felt Michael really overstepped the mark. So in terms of these races picking up on what became maybe traits uh, of Michael's career, there are good and bad ones um, in his career. And there was a feeling here that, yeah, he didn't race particularly cleanly. Um, we had moments where he and Damon were on different tyres because the weather kept changing. And yeah, again, I think we saw his, his wet weather prowess whichever tyres he was on, but we saw that ruthless streak as well. And that was maybe something that Hill didn't possess. And particularly by this stage in 95, I think Michael had had Damon over mentally by this stage. And yeah, um, one of the more controversial victories, actually, I think. Yeah, I, I was still just a fan of this stage just before I started my journalism career. And, and looking at it from that perspective... Schumacher was always hard to love and hard, hard to uh, admire because Agreed, yeah. he pushed it to the limit on the on the on the uh, on the ethics, and this is another example of that. As you say, you know, um, once I took the step over the other side, and you have to be impartial. Um, you could you could just all you could do was was um, marvel at his commitment and his how he raised the bar. Uh, as a driver in every sense from fitness um to mental preparation to everything really but um you could never quite get around um the ethics side of things that he he just didn't really have a, a switch that said when the point was enough well even you know. if he was racing his brother in years to come when when Ralph yeah. was a competitive force but yeah this actually resulted in Williams protested his driving they felt it was that bad mm. um and we didn't get that very often uh, obviously, a world championship was about to go begging, so maybe that played a part in their decision making. But yeah, it was. Uh, I think the hill on wets, Schumacher on slicks, is is an iconic battle. They were side yeah. by side a lot, and Michael certainly didn't give him didn't give him much room. Uh, I don't, I don't, it'd be interesting to see how a battle like that would be policed in the modern era of F one. You could say, yeah. Um, but Hill had his chances. Um, you know, he did get past him in the end, got down the road. Uh, then it dried out, so Schumacher's gamble of staying on slicks really came back to him. But then there's a safety car, so maybe Damon's got another chance, and then he speeds in the pit lane. So I think that comes back to maybe mm. where Damon's head was at at that point. And when you've maybe been uh, had your mind sort of messed with in the way that Damon had earlier in that race, um, he probably wasn't um, thinking particularly clearly at that point, and maybe that contributed to the error as well. Yeah. Um, and Michael didn't make any such slip-ups. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, despite winning the title in 96, Damon lost his Williams drive in 95, didn't he? He did, really, yeah. And that's yeah. that's when Frank and Patrick really thought between them, you know, we need a change. Mm. So, um, and it was, there were, I think Damon's admitted himself, he just made too many mistakes that year. He didn't yeah. drive very well. Yeah, well, I, like Damon, I was still a fan back then as well. And after Nigel Mansfield retired, I'd picked up Damon as my new British hope, as so many people did. And, mm. Cheered him on in 94, felt hard done by when Schumacher crashed into him at Adelaide. But as 95 wore on and the mistakes kept coming, I'm thinking of races like Hockenheim and the Nürburgring where he's throwing it off the road. Monza where he just drives into the back of him. Um, I did just, I, I sort of lost faith as a fan at that point in Hill. And I'm delighted for him that he turned it around in, 
in 96, even though I was a Jacques Villeneuve fan by then. Mm. But yeah, I think I lost faith in the same way that maybe Frank and Patrick did. I've actually argued um, previously that um, no driver has been so superior to anyone else than in that mid-90 period, the mid-90s period to the Schumacher, because, you know, who did he really have who was on the same level as him? Damon, mm. in, a, in a Williams. Yeah. Um, but in that 95 season, not on the greatest form. Yeah, F1 hadn't really... Re- replenished the the stars had it after no. he lost PK Mansell Senna and Prost had all um, yeah. left for different reasons in a couple of years preceding that and Schumacher was perhaps only the the only driver left who was yeah. at that level. Thank goodness for Mika Hakkinen, really. Yeah. But, it, but you know by this stage he hadn't quite he hadn't developed. But by by the late nineties, obviously we had him at McLaren and we had a great battle yeah. between two two genuine greats. But at this stage, I think Schumacher was head and shoulders. Well, this actually segues quite nicely into the next race, the 1996 Spanish Grand Prix, one of the famous wet weather wins. Yeah, I mean, this is one that I think a lot of people would maybe say should be higher up the list. And it does get very difficult when you're into the phase that we're in now to, to position them. Um, we could have we could have bottled it and just said, here are 10 races we're going to talk about. But I feel you need to need to nail your, uh, nail your opinions on the wall somehow, which is what we've done. Um, Spain 96 is incredible. Um you know, he he ends the race with a, a fastest lap, 2.2 seconds quicker than the next best, which I think was Barrichello in the Jordan. Um, but one thing that isn't always picked up on is that he actually, he messed up the start. He had a, a really bad start and uh, due to the clutch. And his quote afterwards was, even Diniz passed me, <laughs> which was his way of indicating... Um, how how bad his start was and how quickly he fell down the order but he made up a lot of those places uh, immediately and uh, finished the opening lap five places ahead of Pedro Diniz um, and then quickly works his way up to second uh, past John Lacey who's another excellent wet weather driver then he just he had to pick off Villeneuve which he made pretty easy work of and then he just pretty much literally floated off into the distance Hill obviously crashed out that day uh, but he was having a, a rough time up to that point anyway in that race. And it, it's the ultimate Rainmeister drive, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I think it is. I mean, you, you've got Jimmy Clark's got Spa 63. Jimmy, uh, Jackie Stewart's got um, Nürburgring 68. You know, Senna had had Estoril and Donington. And this is Schumacher's um, addition to to that, that list, isn't it? And, it, and it's, it was still early on in his career really wasn't it and it, and it was it was a magical win and we should also remember that the car the ferrari 310 was a pretty ungainly car at that point it looked like some vast armchair it had the, yeah it wasn't great it had a very literal interpretation of the the side head the head protection rules around the yeah. the drivers that and the benetton stood out whereas of course the actual way everyone went towards was the way williams with adrian newey and jordan with gary anderson went with much more slimline ones but the car was not a good yeah. car at that stage in the season it got better and now, also, this is a Ferrari team that was still a bit of a shambles at that point. The next race in Canada, we had Eddie Irvine having a drive shaft pop out <laughs> yeah. while he was driving on the pit lane, wasn't it? You know, it's it, that was not that was not Schumacher era Ferrari. That was yeah. well, this that is was the first the, win, was, isn't it? This is yeah, the first Ferrari win. But, but the fact that he was able to, because you think of the pressure that were built there with Schumacher at Ferrari and just the general mess that was going on, mm. just to get that first win on the board meant that people couldn't keep asking when's it going to come, when's it going to come, which of course was the, the millstone they had around their neck before the first championship in the end. But that that probably gave them some breathing space. And Well, Ferrari had spent so much money getting him, hadn't they? And there was so much talk. I even remember how much talk there was from the distance that I was following F1 at the time about the salary and the millions of pounds being spent on him. 
or mm. dollars as it probably was. So I think it was, as you say, it was good for him to get one on the board early. And again, an opportunity where it was all about the driver and he trounced everybody. So suddenly any questions about how much is Michael Schumacher worth kind of went away at this point. And then the focus would turn more on yeah the operations of the race team. And yeah, quite an ungainly car at the time. Yeah, it's just it's such a well, for many reasons. It's a shame we can't talk to him now. But the, I'd love to hear from Schumacher what Ferrari was like when he pitched up um, with this well-honed Benetton team he'd come from to Barnard era Ferrari, where you know Barnard had basically been batting up against the same old problems he'd had in the eighties. It hadn't changed at all. It was the same old, same old, same old with Ferrari. Um, what he must have made of it. And how he thought, how, how am I going to try and turn this around? Um, he, you know, it was the, his tilt at true greatness was to go to Ferrari and turn, turn Ferrari around, but to do it, you know, what it must at that stage, it must have seemed an impossible task. And I think it really will have, as you said, shown how valuable Schumacher was. Cause for example, we saw him outclassing a Lacey massively in that race. You know, we know a good driver, John Lacey and Gerhard Berger, they both went to Benetton. I remember asking Schumacher what he thought he'd have done if he'd stayed at Benetton. He thinks he'd have won the 96 championship. Not in a, not in a arrogant or ridiculous way, but yeah, we know both those drivers had difficulty with a car that had been developed around Schumacher with a sort of center of aero balance about two meters in front of the car. I think mm. Johnny Herbert once described it, it feeling as uh, when he was there in 95. But yeah, it just showed what a driver could bring and it perhaps it gave Schumacher the extra leverage he needed to say actually this is what we need to do we know we've got a driver in the car who can do it so that maybe there's more changes that need to be made and him and Todd and and Ross Braun and so yeah, yeah. it's a, a, a huge victory and the next one Glenn again more a familiar rain. story <laughs> a bit damp yes yeah, Monaco 97 um as we mentioned earlier Michael was always fantastic around the streets of Monaco and uh Ignoring the 96 race where he slid off, uh, was it on the opening lap chasing mm. Hill? Yeah. Um, he was always pretty spectacular around there when it rained as well. Um, I'm just going to run you through some numbers here because he leads the race away. Uh, and after one lap, he is six seconds clear of the field. After two laps, 11 seconds clear. And after three laps, he's 16 seconds clear of everybody in this race. Now, there are a few teams, I think at least one of the McLarens and possibly both Williams drivers started race on slicks, which is a disastrous decision as it turned out. Um, but, you know, the 97 field wasn't spread that uh, horrifically. And that's that's one man absolutely making the difference in, in the toughest of circumstances. You know, Monaco was a much tighter circuit then um, than it is now. And, you know, he was clearly pushing all the way through as well because he slid up the escape road at Saint-Devot later in the race. And actually, uh, after that point, we, we, I've looked through the data and you see that he, he did drop his pace after that. So mm-hmm. I think that, that was a wake-up call. Fortunately, he had a, a massive gap by that point. Uh, I think he was about a minute and 15 seconds clear or something when he went off the road. So then he just had to nurse it to the finish with uh, Rubens Barrichello taking a famous podium for Stewart in their in their rookie season. But it, it comes back, I think, to what Damien was saying earlier about just what a cut above everybody else he was at this stage. Mm. And again, it's still pre-Braun Burn, isn't it? It's a it's a Barnard era uh, win as well, nineteen ninety-seven. So um, it's still fairly early on in the Ferrari, uh, the Ferrari story. Um, and it likes like Spain with the weather being the way it was. That's when he showed his difference. You got to the point during, particularly during that era, where he was having to maybe make up a slight shortfall in the car department. Mm. Where whenever it did rain, you'd kind of thought, well, he's probably going to beat everybody here. Yeah. Um, 
and you know, whether it was yeah. Yeah, inspired yeah. tire choice or just out driving everybody if they are all on the same tires it, it became it became almost expected and you know driving in the rain is incredibly difficult uh the best of times so that the guys i think the guys who are good in the wet even today there's something about that skill that always makes them stand out isn't there one of the things actually i was watching some uh some schumacher footage last night and one of the things that really impressed me about schumacher is his traction sensing when he's putting the putting the power down you can see he's got just the edge on people in some of the races in that area it's not something i remember really noticing at the time but that's one of the things obviously you see the lines he finds the grip etc but just that that ability so in difficult conditions just just have that really sensitive right foot and and you could see him playing with the car it is it is maybe something we didn't notice when some of us were younger or were just fans but as you say when you go back and watch those and you have a greater understanding maybe of the dynamics of an f1 car and you see that it wasn't just that he was finding more grip than everybody else. He was kind of he was making the car mm. dance in the way that we used to see from Senna as well. You know, it was it was all about the man, really. I think it was, it was amazing. I guess, I guess this is why so many pure, so-called purists have always hated traction control, and Senna allegedly hated traction control because uh, it it's it leveled out the yeah. the playing field, didn't it? And the the, the true greats couldn't show their difference and. When it rained, that was the opportunity to, <laughs> to do exactly that. My footnote for this race is that Gary Anderson reckons Jordan would have had a chance to win that race if Rubens Barrichello had still been there. Because, of course, it was Fisichella who was running second early on. In he early was dropped laps, yeah. at that pace. And I think, if memory serves, Ralph Schumacher was on for a podium before retiring, wasn't he? Mm. Uh, yeah, he broke down. But, the, uh, the one last thing I'd say here is Damien's correct to point out that this was still sort of early era. Ferrari hadn't really made all the changes they were going to make. And it is remarkable in many ways that Schumacher did fight for the world championship in just his second season before all the pieces were really in place but it's drives like monaco in 97 where you know you could make up the difference battling against the williams team that still had the best car you, you could be really harsh here and say that you know jack villeneuve was um you know should Don't have won. finish that sentence <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know he could have won that championship much easier than he made it harder for himself in, in a, in a, so Patrick Head tells us in a Williams yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and Jacques Villeneuve probably I think it's fair to say he wasn't at his best in the wet conditions as well yeah. well actually talking about that evolution of Ferrari the next race takes us kind of the next step as Ferrari's gradually coming together doesn't it Glenn yeah I think this is this is another contender um, that a lot of people would maybe pick as their number one uh, and we're back to the the pit wall and Schumacher working in perfect harmony here Hungary 98 Famous, of course, because Ferrari switched to a three-stop strategy, I believe, I think it was mid-race, when they sort of trying to judge track position versus the McLarens, and he might have even got stuck behind Villeneuve's Williams, I think, early on and lost a bit of time. Um, so Ross Braun gives Michael the call that he's uh, they've switched their strategy and he's got to find 25 seconds in 19 laps, um, which is remarkable. And Schumacher delivers, and the lead he ended up with actually during that phase was 26.9 seconds, so he gave himself almost an extra two seconds on what he'd been asked for, and I think, yeah, that this sums up that that change had happened. By this point, Ferrari were becoming the ruthless machine that would go on to be unstoppable for so many years with Schumacher and and Braun. Uh, I'm sure there were plenty of those paddock embraces by this point that you were mentioning earlier, Damien, and... McLaren just didn't know what to do. I think they were completely outfoxed by this. Yeah, and it's that I love that bit about this is what you've got to do, and you just get the the okay over yeah. the radio, and he just gets on with it. 
and that's that's pure Schumacher, isn't it? Uh, and it's it's those that ability to lap, you know, um, the qualifying pace ability, lap after lap consistently um, uh, to, to win a Grand Prix. We'd seen other drivers do do that kind of thing before, but in this era when it was it was essential, wasn't it? Between you know, it was just the sprint stop sprint era. No one was anywhere near as good as Schumacher at it. He was the best. It's the kind of win you don't see so much anymore. Now, in that era, you can easily, well, justifiably, you can criticise the way races were run because it was mm. sort of strategic. So it was about putting together these bits yeah. of extreme pace when you really needed it. Sometimes it was just in a window around the pit stop. Sometimes it was in a stint or whatever. But you couldn't win a Grand Prix like that with the current regulations, no. the way everything is with having to protect the tyres, the engines, all these sorts of things. And there is a great appeal in seeing a driver just getting their head down and say, right, I'm just going to go as fast as I can now for this period, and that's what's going to win me the race. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things, I think, that, that did hurt the refueling era of F1 was that the best way to win a race was to make sure you were never on the same piece of track as the guys you were racing. Hmm. Um, and, yeah, just it, you're almost time-trialling against them and on different parts of the circuit. And that's one of the reasons I wasn't a huge fan of that era, but that doesn't mean you can't appreciate a drive like this. Yeah. And in terms of Ferrari from a, an operations point of view... And what happened to McLaren? McLaren tried to cover Schumacher's kind of out of sync stop with Coulthard in the second McLaren, but he came out behind him. So that's one car they've already completely really lost from the fight. Hakkinen did have some sort of mysterious chassis problem or something that was costing him time. But McLaren then blundered again because they didn't get him out of Coulthard's way quick enough. And uh, he spent five laps. They spent five laps with their Hakkinen holding DC up. Hmm. Um so by that point, they, they've given the race to Michael by then. But obviously, it's it's the genius of the strategy call and his execution that put McLaren in that situation and left them really unable to fight back. Yeah. Let's move back to the Benetton era now. 1995 European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. So sort of a home Grand Prix win for, for Michael Schumacher. Not the German Grand Prix, but uh, but the second race on uh, on German soil. Yeah, uh, it, this is, a, I think, a really famous race. Uh, in a lot of people's minds, I think many people wish um, Jean Alesi could have won it. Uh, as a, and it's obviously become famous for a, a massive chase from Schumacher to catch Alesi in the closing stages and pass him right near the end. Again, there's a bit of changeable weather through the race. Um, and again, some clever, some clever pit strategies at work from Benetton, you know, making sure that at certain points Michael was light on fuel so he could make up a load of time. Um, he wasn't necessarily convinced about about this strategy, because um, I think I think they called him in for an extra stop or something like that, and and he had to make up all the time again. But obviously, then you're talking you're talking fresher tyres, um, and a, a man very determined at this point. The, the world championship was effectively already wrapped up by this point, but again, it's another example of he could have come home. Hills crashed out. He could have taken six points for second place, mm. but it's just not what he's about. Utter belligerence in this race. Yeah, he just refused yeah. to lose. And it was, I remember at the time just thinking, how has he won that? How has he, you know, and I think I do remember Damon standing at the edge of the track beside his crashed car, you know, clapping him. He applauded him afterwards. Yeah. yeah it, which it was is a very nice touch. I, I, the numbers here were he, he made an extra stop, which he didn't realize he had to make that stop. Um, and with 16 laps to go, he's 24 seconds behind the Lacey. So it's this, you know, this is a common theme here, isn't it? That we're mentioning a massive gap and a performance that requires more than a second a lap advantage over your rivals, and he's done it again. Yeah. I think the big thing here is Alacy had an opportunity to win that race. I think if Schumacher's in Alacy's position and Alacy's in Schumacher's position, then Schumacher wins the race as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because Alacy, 
okay, he had an 18 lap older set of tires. He was struggling for grip, but he made a mistake. He went off at the chicane while, uh, uh, lapping Brundle or trying to lap Brundle's Ligier. So he made a few mistakes there. And then he put up a reasonable defense for a bit. And then eventually the, the move, uh, he defended to the inside into the final chicane and right. Schumacher came steaming up the inside. And Lacey, to his credit, you know, he, he kept very much out of the way. He didn't want to cause collision, but I just feel like he maybe could have been a tiny bit more belligerent to use, uh, yeah. your word there about, about protecting his position. I'm, I'm sure Schumacher would have been in that situation. But, but realistically, I think Schumacher had broken him just with that relentless pace. And we talked about, uh, the race earlier, China where Schumacher had that big lead and had a car catching him and that ability to pace himself and manage the race mentally and say, right, I've got this, I can afford to lose this, I can afford to lose that. Some drivers just can't do that. Mm. If they've got a 26-second lead, they can't like ration it. Mm. They, they, the pressure builds and builds and then you compound errors and that kind of thing. So that that's what I think tells you all the difference between Schumacher and a driver like Alacy, who we know how good Alacy could be and how quick he could be, but he was not a patch on Schumacher in terms of roundedness of driver. No. And this was arguably a Lacey probably at the height of his powers, actually. I think 95 was one of his best seasons, if not the best. Um, but that was still all he had. You know, he's a one-time Grand Prix winner by this point. And we talked earlier about some of the drives Michael put in when he only had one or two wins to his name already. And he was driving like a veteran or someone who'd done it 20 times before. I think Lacey drove this race like a man who had only won one race before and maybe wasn't sure that there were any more to come. And as mm. it turned out, of course, there weren't. Well, let's move on to number one in the list. This is, in fact, Michael Schumacher's choice when he did a Race of My Life feature in Autosport. So he, he put together a piece for it with his recollections of the race and, and how it went. 2000 Japanese Grand Prix. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We can debate every other position in this list, but we can't really debate this one because Michael chose it as his greatest ever drive and his greatest ever race. And I think that sums up um, how he viewed Mika Hakkinen as a rival as well. And how he viewed the, that era of racing, because this was the sprint racing between the pit stops. And this was Hakkinen and Schumacher absolutely flat out from start to finish. Um, there's a little sprinkling of rain at the end, but nothing that makes makes a huge difference. Although there's, there's a great moment where I think might be Wurtz's Benetton spins in front of him. When just when they're between, I think Hakkinen's maybe just stopped and Schumacher's got to make, make the gap and, and get on with it to come out in front again. And uh, yeah, he has to negotiate a spin in Benetton. Um, and again, maybe another another example of when other guys are falling off the track, Schumacher's putting time into Mika Hakkinen to win the race and ultimately win the World Championship. And it's the first Ferrari Championship. So a really significant moment. He, in that race in my life that you mentioned, Ed, he said that he hit the steering wheel so hard on the slowdown lap, it could never be used again. So that shows how much emotion there was. Um, I wonder where that steering wheel is now and how much it's worth. Yeah, I want to know how damaged it is as well. Yeah, yeah. Imagine having that on your shelf. That'd be a great thing to have, wouldn't it? Yeah, but yeah, this is, I, I think this, this sums up the era. It was kind of, this was the curtain coming down on, on Hakkinen versus Schumacher, really. Mika and McLaren weren't the same force the following season. Ferrari were on a huge upward trajectory by this point. Um, so it's kind of, it was nice. They had a couple of iconic races, obviously, that year. Hakkinen won at Spa, which is really famous as well. And Hakkinen actually led a large a larger portion of this race than Schumacher did but it's another example of Ferrari making sure you lead the right parts of the race you could say I think it's a good choice well good choice from Michael and a, a good choice from you Glenn <laughs> I think I think it's it is an archetype of of that era um the significance of, of it ha- 
is a, is obviously a factor. Uh, the, the pressure that had built over that period to end this this drought, you know, and and finally do it, um, and it, it could also horribly have gone wrong for him. And um, and he 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 delivered a typical Schumacher um, uh, victory. And and um, I think. Yeah, the Alonso battle in 06 was was brilliant, but Mika is the rival that we I always think of when I think of Michael Schumacher. Those 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 few seasons with the two of them were going head to head were brilliant. I and think I think we think about their rivalry from the pure racing perspective. Schumacher Hill is quite famous largely because of the controversies and the fact that they crashed into each other quite a few times in quite a short period. But we didn't really have the same sort of relentless week after week. Who's going to be on top? cars very evenly matched and, and arguably drivers evenly matched and mm. I think Michael has said in the past hasn't he that Mika was his favourite rival as well and yeah, yeah it's, it's a memorable rivalry for all the right reasons you could say I think you see that in the fact that I always feel Schumacher felt he was a cut above Damon Hill mm. just mm. which is perfectly reasonable Damon Hill I think is a very underrated driver but I think even Damon would recognise now that Michael Schumacher is he's kind of the gold standard and yeah Hakkinen sort of felt like like Schumacher's natural natural enemy well let's quickly recap uh the the top 10 in reverse order number 10 2006 Chinese Grand Prix number 9 2004 French Grand Prix number 8 the first win 1992 Belgian Grand Prix number 7 1994 Brazilian Grand Prix number 6 the 1995 Belgian Grand Prix from 16th on the grid Number five, 1996 Spanish Grand Prix. Number four, 1997 Monaco. Number three, 1998 the Hungarian Grand Prix. Number two, 1995 European Grand Prix at Nürburgring with that late pass on a Lacey. And number one, Schumacher's race of my life, in his own words, the 2000 Japanese Grand Prix. Now, any other contenders? Damien, are there any races that, that spring to mind that, that Glenn has ignored? I, I thought this was an excellent list. I wouldn't really argue with it. Um, I'll the, go on. Uh, the one Podcast that, over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2001 Malaysia st- stood out for me as something special. Um, that was the, the monsoon crazy race. crazy downpour race, yeah. yeah. Um, it was also, for me personally, again, it, I was I was covering it for Autosport as, as a... I, did, I never actually worked as a Grand Prix editor, but I, did, I wrote two Grand Prix reports when Mark Hughes, his wife, was having a baby and I covered for him. So I, and I, that was one of them. And it was a really special race to cover because I thought... That was a Schumacher, a gold standard Schumacher performance. There was that iconic shot, wasn't there? Both the Ferraris skating across the gravel as the, as yeah, the rain hit. Absolutely. Yeah, that's my overriding memory from that race. Yeah, crazy weather out there, yeah. as we, we've all probably experienced at times. It just, it just comes down like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and, uh, and again, I just thought on that day, it showed how he was in a separate class to, to the rest of them. But other than that, I, I didn't come up with too many more that would threaten this list, to be honest. It's a good it's a good list, I think. Well, Glenn, the one that generally comes up is Spa 97. That often crops up in these, these yeah, Schumacher lists. So was, why is that missing? That was the hardest one to leave out, really. Um, it, it sort of fits the formula of a lot of other races we've talked about where there's, there's, ra- there's he's driving away from everybody in the rain, changeable conditions. It's Spa again, where he was always so, so fantastic. And I did, I did feel really, once I'd whittled the list down, I ended up really with 11 races in my head and Spa 97 was the hardest one to leave out. But I, I was determined that if you're going to do a list like this and you're going to call it a top 10, there are going to be hard decisions to take. And I felt that you don't necessarily have to do a list like this where you have to cover all bases. But I wanted to make sure that different types of Schumacher brilliance were acknowledged through the list, different eras of his success. So when he was a young charger, maybe a pretender to the throne and... And when he's the eldest elder statesman 
uh, towards the end of his first career because he didn't give us any wins in the second career. Um, so I felt that maybe Spa 97 I could kind of get lost in the shuffle. But whenever I talk to him about this list, I do expect that to be the one that's most likely to be to be brought up. And, and I know that we discussed this before we recorded it, Ed, and you've had a, a good look into that to maybe see how strong the case is for it. Yeah, I think the thing that makes a difference for me is when I look back, Schumacher chose to start on intermediates. The others didn't. Now, there is a part in the early phase of the race where he's lapping way faster than, than anyone, including some of them on intermediates. I think Fisichella is one of the, the front runners on, on intermediates as well. And, it, and it's really good. But then you think, but it's not a wet win that's quite up there with some of the other ones on this list. So, yeah, p- perfectly, perfectly legitimate. I think it's one of those ones that at the time looks fractionally more brilliant than it actually was. I mean, it was, a, it was a very good win, but not, not, not kind of a great one to sit with the, the top few in this. Well, list. it was. Am I right in thinking it was a safety car start as well? And it was, and it was maybe an example of the start of what we've started to see in years since, where you could maybe start a, a wet race on intermediates um, because you know that the worst of the weather you're going to be driving on, you'll be driving behind a safety car anyway. Yeah, I mean, the good thing with Schumacher is he did do those uh, two quick-fire passes. He passed a Lacey at the hairpin, and then he passed Villeneuve in the in the right-hander after after the run through Lecom. I've forgotten the name of temporarily um, early on to get into the lead, but it was, it was a great win. There was one victory that, that sprung to my mind, which was 1993 Portuguese Grand Prix. That was the second victory, and uh, that was had uh, Schumacher had Prost all over him in the, in the closing stages. And in my mind, that, that battle was like Prost looking for all sorts of different ways past. And I must admit, I re-watched the end of that race and yes it's sort of that but Prost needs to win first or second to clinch the 93 title and you watch it and you think Prost has a few looks but basically he's only going past if Schumacher lets him there's no there's no point where you think Prost really puts it on the line there's a few points where you think oh go on go on and he doesn't and it, you know it's a cracking victory and it was a really memorable race because it had the, that was the one where Hackenham made his McLaren debut at qualified centre a lacy led after sweeping around the outside of everyone the start Hackenham had his, had his uh, big shunt and then of course my personal favourite which was uh, Gerhard Berger having that really badly timed active suspension failure mm. coming out the of the pit exit. exit and he just goes broadside across the front of Derek Warwick yeah. in the footwork terrifying and, yeah. un- unbelievable a good example of how bad Sadly, Ferrari were getting on top of uh, active suspension yeah, yes, by that yeah. point, which is perhaps why it got banned for oh, the it, season. It was getting on top of them, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The, but, the, yeah. The, the Ferrari active suspension always reminds me of a tale Nico Larini told me about 1992 when he came in, last two races of the year. He was in the active car that was then quite new at the time of testing, apparently. Coming around to the end, towards the end of the parade lap, the car just started going up and down. And he's on the radio saying, what, what do I do? It's just a random. And they said, we'll just start. And he said, I'm starting the race. And I was going down, going down to the first corner with just the car just messing about and just ride eyes changing. Incredible. It, it was amazing. Uh, the, the last thing I'd say about um, Portugal 93 is that I think that race summed up Prost's whole approach to that season. Um, he, he played the percentages at the best of times, but I think he did have maybe a lot more speed than people sometimes gave him credit for just because of some of the guys he was racing against. Um, but in 93, it seemed very much, he was very kind of just get the job done, just do enough. And I think that race was the same thing. He knew second was enough to, to win the world championship and uh, he'd be on his way with, with four in his pocket by that point. Yeah. So I, I think it was that we sort of got a look at how the whole season played out in some ways in, in that race. And the few other races that, that crop up, 2003 Imola is often cited because that was uh, straight after the, the death of, uh, of Michael Schumacher's mother, uh, Elizabeth. So it, it was a great emotional victory. And it was a well-executed win. Mm. Uh, 
another one of those victories with uh, Williams having problems in pit stops because Ralph Schumacher actually led early on but he couldn't get it in gear and then Montoya was in there but he overshot his pit box and they couldn't do one of the wheels quickly enough so that, was, that's a win based on, on cer- the circumstances make that a remarkable achievement exactly it's, it's, it's yeah. great so and actually I was looking at his narrowest margins of victory and there's, there's a few like the second closest one is the 2002 Austrian Grand Prix when Rubens let him pass I'm not going to talk about that one but 2000 Canadian Grand Prix won by 0.174 again from Rubens but that was the race where he had brake pop problems and he, he had in fact he had an off at the first corner down to those rear brake problems and then Rubens closed in on him right at the end and was sort of told to hold station so again another you know outside of the top 10 there are countless well executed well taken wins he didn't luck into many no and uh, it's just that one was particularly uh, particularly close I guess that's the, maybe the one thing that's lacking is that really dramatic sort of <laughs> Uh, over the line, really close, uh, really close finish there. But there are a few of them. But uh, he tried to engineer one with Barrichello, didn't he? And yeah. <laughs> Barrichello overtook him. Yeah, that, yeah. that one went. Uh, that one went very well, very well. But inevitably, everyone listening to this will have their own memories, and there'll be races that stand out. There's 91 of them to choose from. We've probably well, we've picked 10, and we've probably talked about another four or five. So you know, we'd have been here for hours if we if we'd gone through any of them. So if there's any anything. So if there's any races people want to flag up to us at Autosport on Twitter, check out our Facebook page, you'll be able to respond to it. Uh, look in the magazine, you can see uh, email addresses. And, you know, we've even got a postal address for if anybody from the 20th century wants to send us a, an actual written letter about it. And people do. We always uh, very gratefully receive them here at, uh, here at Autosport. So hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, uh, maybe uh, consider giving us a, a nice positive review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy it, you can always give us a, a negative review. But as I always say, well done for, for getting this far through the podcast if you, uh, if you didn't like it. And please recommend it to your friends. And also, I suggest everyone check out autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula One, the whole world of motorsport, our plus subscriber area, all sorts of in-depth features on there by some of our star writers. Autosport magazine out every Thursday. Also, please check out sister title F1 Racing, the monthly magazine, and motorsport.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking. 
for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.